From the University of Toronto's Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, this is the I'm Pharmacy Podcast. I'm Mina Tadros. The hustle and bustle of a pharmacy are no different than many busy stores. High traffic even in the smallest corner pharmacy seeing close to 100 customers a day. But the pharmacy isn't a regular store. If you look right behind the pharmacist, you see shelves and shelves of different drugs. Each drug helping people in different ways, many of them saving lives, increasing patient years, or helping alleviate symptoms that may be associated with a variety of different ailments. Aside from sanitation and vaccines, no greater impact has been seen on our morbidity and mortality than drugs. This is an often overlooked cornerstone of our healthcare system. Since the dawn of medicine, there was a reason why the first practitioners were called medicine men. The practitioner and the medicine were in many ways connected. The hope that the imbalance in the body could be solved from something outside the body to restore balance has stuck with humans since the dawn of time. And yet, with over 14,000 approved drugs, each has its own story. The science that led it to those very shelves behind me, how it was discovered, tested, used, and for each drug, there were hundreds of candidates that may not have made those very shelves. And from those failures came even more discoveries. And that is what we hope to explore on this podcast. How are drugs created, invented? How did they come to be? Who is involved in producing this innovation? How does an innovation in this space even happen? We hope to learn from stories and the scientists that have helped develop, improve, invent, and create drugs that impact lives. And we want to use many of these stories to illustrate the importance of science in helping us understand this. We're going to learn from the stories of innovation, and I hope to explore what it takes to have a successful and useful drug that improves lives around the world. No story is more close to home and embodies this than the invention of insulin. This story showcases two important factors that affect all science. The first, diligence. Sure, we have a bias being from the University of Toronto, but this story is powerful to illustrate the power of innovation in drugs. Today, it's hard to imagine, but 100 years ago, a diagnosis of diabetes was pretty much a death sentence. Today, this is absolutely different. But honestly, it doesn't all start in Toronto. The work and invention of insulin was built on decades of work by colleagues around the world, looking at the pancreas, trying to understand its working, and first figuring out where diabetes started from and why. Then, the second factor of science kicked in. Luck. In 1921, at the corner of university and college in Toronto, two scientists, Frederick Banting and Charles Best, figured out how to remove insulin from a dog's pancreas. They extracted thick, brown sludge. They then took the sludge and gave it to a diabetic dog. The dog lived until they ran out of the sludge. They then figured out how to extract more of that sludge from larger animals and in 1922 gave it to Leonard Thompson, a 14-year-old boy dying of diabetes. It saved his life. They won the Nobel Prize. From that point on, they worked with companies like Eli Lilly to figure out how to produce large volumes of this miraculous sludge to share around the world. Over the years, we've produced better and better insulins, with a variety of different mechanisms and solutions. 
but it still builds on the same work from that Toronto lab. I've always been fascinated by the stories of each medication and how they ended up on those shelves behind me. Well, I have a bias. I'm a pharmacist and and obviously drugs are my passion. But I hope to show you that all these stories are in a way unique. There are so many interesting and neat ways of how these drugs got to where they are. I think no time has shown people how complex and global the process of drug development is than the last year or two during the COVID pandemic. As we sat by waiting for new drugs and treatments and vaccines, we learned about how drugs are discovered, repurposed, developed, tested, and then distributed. I hope to share with you over this season of this podcast the magic of medications using the power of science and examples from our very own Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto to showcase how drugs go from being ideas to being stocked on pharmacy shelves around the world. This week, we start with the pivotal question, where do the ideas for new drugs start from? Where do they even start by inventing a new drug? And how does one find the next insulin? I've always been fascinated by the notion of where ideas come from. The spark that ignites discovery and innovation and gets the ball rolling. To dig into this question, I sat down with Associate Professor Dr. Carolyn Cummins, a researcher at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy and the director of our Pharmaceutical Sciences program. Dr. Cummins' work focuses on developing drug targets related to diabetes and obesity. We talk about the importance of collaboration, observation, one of her projects derived from a material you'll never guess, and where her lab fits into the life cycle of a drug. So maybe we could just start off with where do you think that your work fits into the full life cycle of a drug? Okay, yeah, I'm definitely at the beginning. Very early, uh, we look at essentially validating drug targets and figuring out whether or not they will be promising. So I think a lot of our work stems from observations, interesting observations, and the targets that I work on are druggable and have shown success in the clinic for other things in other classes. And so I like that the target I work on is druggable and <laughs> we basically just follow the science. So we have an interesting observation and then see, oh, could this be potentially used therapeutically? So what questions do you ask now? So now I'm broadly interested in mechanisms of disease. So in particular, metabolic diseases. Mm-hmm. And that actually uh, came about at the end of my postdoc. So I had a very um, fortuitous discovery, as, as often is the case yeah. in science. And uh, discovered that our LXR knockout mice that we were studying were resistant to getting diabetes when I treated them with glucocorticoid drugs. And, you know, it's well known that glucocorticoids basically stimulate glucose production. And um, and so I took that observation basically and I interviewed for my independent academic position based on that observation. And the idea was that if LXR knockouts were resistant to developing diabetes, maybe if we block LXR when we give a glucocorticoid, we could keep the good effects of glucocorticoids, which they're potent anti-inflammatories, but not not get the development of diabetes. And that's essentially where we're at right now. So in my group, we have followed that up using um, 
you know, activator studies and loss of function studies and shown that if we target LXR beta in particular, um, we can lose the bad effects of glucocorticoids. So I want to talk, this is a question I've been dying to ask you. So tell me about, and I just wanted to say it this way, which is talk to me about Brazilian cashews. (laughs) (laughs) A science talk, but we're talking about nuts. Talking about nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's a pretty interesting project as well. Yeah. Also a drug a drug development project that we have um, for a different nuclear receptor called yeah. PPAR. So um, how did that come about? So actually it was um, my Brazilian colleague, yeah. uh, Luis Romero. Uh, he contacted me out of the blue mm-hmm. and said, I've designed some compounds from the extract of a cashew nut shell. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually in the, the cashew. Shell. It's from the shell. Interesting. That's right. And the, you know, as you probably know, Brazil is famous for its export of cashews. And the shells are kind of like a waste byproduct. Mm -hmm. And um, so they get thrown away. And sometimes you can use the resin of the shells in different industrial applications. But essentially what he does is he takes that resin and he extracts from it the phenolic lipids that are Mm -hmm. there. And if you know anything about them, I, I learned through my collaboration, but they're called anacardic acids, cardinal. So these, these phenolic lipids, basically, um, you can get, I think it, he told me it was one ton of this raw extract is $300. So you get like one ton. It's a huge amount. Where are they delivering it? Like on his driveway? Like, yeah, where, I know, I know. <laughs> it's like, it's, where do you even, where do you even store a ton cheap. of something? Well, because it's a waste product, yeah. I suppose. And, um, and, and he's de- designed it so that the compounds that he makes are using green chemistry. Okay. So it's not a huge uh, strain, you know, on the environment and things. And so it's really a neat project. Anyway, he hypothesized that his compounds that he made from this extract right. were probably going to be PPAR agonists. Mm-hmm. And so PPAR stands for peroxisome proliferator activated receptor. There's three of them in our body. They're all important in metabolism. Right. Different aspects, though. And um, we ended up testing um, his compounds, and we found that, indeed, he was correct. So uh, they did activate uh, PPARs. And what was neat about them was that they kind of look like fatty acids. Like, fatty acids are the endogenous ligands for Mm -hmm. PPARs. And they kind of look like them. They're phenolic, though, so they have a a difference. But that difference, turns out, makes them a bit more potent. So not as potent as like a rosy, which is nanomolar sort of efficacy range. Mm -hmm. These are in the micromolar or 100 nanomolar range. But but they look like fatty acids. And so what they do is they induce a different conformation of the receptor. Mm -hmm. And I... What my my impression is from our data so far is that that's a safer way to activate these um, uh, receptors because it doesn't cause all of these um, sort of turning on of all of these genes that were never really meant to be turned on right. to that extent. So downstream, yes, yeah, so exactly. It's like the drugs that were generated are great because they're really potent, but they also cause all these side effects that we've talked right. about. Like they do cause bone loss. They, right. There are, there's, there's true right. things about these agonists that are not ideal. They're too strong. They're too strong in my, right. in my opinion. Yeah. So do you foresee this as being a potential like supplement in a way, or is this something that you're thinking? So, or- you know, I think you know, for it to be a supplement, I think it would have to be natural. Right. 
but it's not natural because we extract it from the cashew nut shell yeah. and then he does some green chemistry on it. Ah. So it's not technically. So it doesn't meet the technicalities of it being It would not meet in my, in, in my view, the technicalities. Yeah. yeah. But it would be a, a potential therapy that's like a, a softer in a way if for lack yes. of a technical yes. temper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, I actually think it could be as effective because, um, and I didn't tell you this yet, but it activates both PPAR alpha and PPAR gamma. So it's a, more natural, I would mm. say, um, partial agonist, but a dual partial agonist. Right. So you get both the insulin sensitizing effects and the um, anti-hypolipidemic effects. Right. So that's fantastic for metabolic disease, yeah. for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, for di- type 2 diabetes, obesity. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we're pretty excited because our mouse models have shown uh, so we have a mouse model of diet-induced obesity. Yeah. So we feed our mice a high-fat diet uh, for um, four to eight weeks or so. Yeah. And then introduce this compound that we give to the animals, and they will lose all that excess fat that they gained, uh, and they go back to baseline, like where the chow-fed normal mice, yeah. normal diet-fed mice go. And uh, their livers look really healthy, and like they look really healthy. Right. They look great. So. So far, we think we have something that's pretty exciting. So this segues to an interesting question. So when I was reading your work, I was like, when we think about drug development in the very beginning and, and building a foundation that's for how to find new drugs, some of your work concentrates on target first. Mm-hmm. You find a target and then you think, well, how can I develop something for it? But your second project, the cashews, mm-hmm. talk about molecule first. Right. And there's like you have a hypothesis of where it might work, but you're starting with a molecule in a way. Can you compare and contrast these two and like what are the pros and cons of starting with a target first or a molecule first? And which one do you think is sort of the the, the winner? Like which one's better? Do we need both? Like if you had to pick one, like and, and in your personal opinion, which one's your favorite? Well, so in my in my personal so they're very different, but I think as an academic, uh I I find it uh, very exciting to discover new biology. Yeah. So it's not only about, so even though we're in a factory of pharmacy and drugs are us essentially, yeah. right? We, we are also interested in new biology. So what, so I quite like the target approach, meaning like, could this be a good target? Because, you know, one of the problems in the pharmaceutical industry is lack of good targets. Yeah. You know, pharma is excellent at developing drugs but they need targets that are well validated mm-hmm. to know that they should spend all of that money in, in the med chem and optimization, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I, I feel that the value that, that my, you know, my lab would bring would be more on the target validation side and sort of, you know, understanding how uh, different proteins contribute to metabolic disease. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. I always talk about how like far, like, yeah, that's a, that's a really great point because they don't they they're really great at developing molecules and drugs and figuring out how to make lots of it and expand it and distribute it and like that's that's what they do. But I think especially more recently they've strayed away from the foundational work to figure out new targets, right? Like that they they kind that's of That's right. Sta- a lot of that happens in academia. Yeah, they stand on the shoulder of giants, right? Like they wait for academia to figure it out and then they jump in later down the process. And so 
as a society, like funding academia to continue finding that is like a, is a sort of a, a long-term investment into finding new drugs. It is. You're right. Yeah. No, and, that's a good And we don't really it. think about it that way because pharma kind of takes the cake for like, oh, we invented this drug, but really like you wouldn't have, you didn't just pull this out of nowhere. Right. I always kind of chuckle at that when they, when they bring that up. Yeah, you're right. Because fundamental science was first. From our initial conversation with Professor Cummins, it was very obvious that the development of drugs could follow various different pathways. Sometimes starting with a molecule, other times working on a target. To better understand these different approaches, I chatted with Professor Shana Kelly, a status professor at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy and a professor in the Department of Chemistry at Northwestern University. So, Maybe we can just start off by asking at a, at a high level, how would you describe the area of work that you do? Yeah, so the research that we do is it really brings an interdisciplinary approach to the areas of drug discovery and also the development of diagnostics. We combine chemistry and biology and different types of engineering to develop new technologies that allow us to see things at the molecular level that we haven't have been able to see before. So how did, how did you get to where you're asking these questions today? What was the journey to get to this point? It sounds like you're combining a lot of different uh, foundational areas of work. Uh, and yet, like, did you know that you were going to bring them all together? How, how did you land here? Yeah, most definitely not. So <laughs> I was trained as a, a chemist. And chemists, they really come in two flavors. You have people that make molecules and people that measure molecules. And I'm, I'm more of the measuring type. I know how to make, but I mainly measure. And I was trained that way. I did a postdoctoral fellowship in molecular biology, got very interested in biomolecules, and then launched my own problem or my own program uh, looking at a few pathways that I thought were were interesting and where there was a lot of information still to be elucidated to, to help us understand uh, how biology was working. And over time, what I realized is that a lot of unanswered biological questions, what they needed were new techniques, new technologies that just allowed us to see things that were currently obscure. So we started working on the development of just new ways to, to measure different things about molecules and even looking at cells, one cell at a time, to just understand what was going on uh, with different types of, of biology. And then eventually that got us interested in how you can use new technologies to better diagnose disease, but also how you can use new technologies to discover pathways that might be relevant for therapeutic development. So is your work building those, the, the sort of the foundational aspects of being able to measure that? Is there a therapeutic area that you've zoomed in on most? Um, or do you kind of cross cut a lot of different areas? A lot of our work is cross cutting, but we have focused in the area of oncology. We have developed a way to look at basically a billion cells at a time and, and to interrogate libraries of cells that have individual gene knockouts 
And that allows us to sort through a big collection of cells and hone in on the ones that are doing what we would maybe want a cancer cell to do in the body so that we can help uh, fight against tumors and kill tumor cells in the body. And so we do a lot of screening now where mm -hmm. we're doing massively parallel measurements of cells to, again, hone in on just a few that might be doing something interesting that tells us about a new way to develop a drug. So, so do you foresee this as sort of the preliminary step to find that target or find that therapy? Um, like if you can imagine in the future, how, how would this roll out? Would, would they test, would they use some of the technology you're developing to fine tune it and then it would lead to a development of a drug or would it actually be combined with a therapy? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example yeah. of one of these studies. So uh, we decided to use this ability to look at billions of cells at one time to see if we could find the regulators of proteins that are problematic because these proteins allow tumor cells to trick the immune system, right? A tumor cell will put a protein on its surface that doesn't really belong there, but they do it because then the immune system and immune cells look at the tumor cells and they say, they're okay, I'm just going to leave them alone. So we did a screen where we looked for ways to kind of knock the proteins down mm. off the surface of the cell. And in doing that, we found a regulator that controlled that expression event or controlled how that protein was put onto the surface of the cell. And so we identified a new target. We found an enzyme that if we knocked it out, then that problematic protein came off the surface of the cell. And then the immune cells could then do their thing with the tumor cells and right. kill them. And then uh, we looked for ways to inhibit those enzymes. And we found small molecules that if we dosed cells with that small molecule, mm -hmm. then we could target that pathway and we could take that problematic protein off the surface of the cell. So we try to take it the full through the full pipeline of experiments yeah. where we do the screens, we find a potential target, and then we try to drug that target if we can, you know, if the chemistry is straightforward enough, but then we can partner with other groups to do the next phase. And so we are now partner partnering with a pharmaceutical company where we're trying to make better molecules, molecules that may really have good therapeutic activity that could be used in the clinic. So then that's an example of how we went all the way from kind of a technology that allows you to sort through billions of cells to having molecules in hand that could someday be used in a patient. After digging into the idea of how targets are found and how these beginning molecules are selected, I wanted to better understand how they formulate questions, where these ideas for future drugs come from. Here's Dr. Cummins again. I think it's, um, for me so far, it's been uh, observations that I haven't ignored. So observations that didn't fit with what I had anticipated. Yeah. And not ignoring them. And, and saying like, geez, like, how can you explain that? That doesn't yeah. make any sense. And like, it's, it's easier to ignore them. But I think 
I think by them kind of nagging, like being a, yeah. sort of a nagging thought at the back of my mind always, it's like, I have to resolve this issue. And, and that often takes me into the new direction. So how do you differentiate between observation and noise? Because that's something I struggle with all the time, right? Like sometimes you see something and you're like, is this just noise or variation in my data or something like that? Or I have some observation bias where I want to see this, but maybe it's just noise or an outlier. Like mm. how do you, um, I'm sure you see that all the time when you guys do experiments and something just doesn't make sense. Yeah, especially when it's like you get the result that you didn't anticipate. Yeah. We do it again <laughs> and then again yeah. and then again. And then, and you know, if you get that result at least three times, we yeah. believe it as long as you have the right controls. So we right. always have like a positive control and a negative control. Right. As long as those behave as expected, then everything else can right, be Right, because you know your experiment's running well. That's and it's right. not that someone's pipetting something wrong or something. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. No, absolutely. Exactly. So you're, yeah. you're, you would say that your the core of your ideas come from solid observation. <laughs> well, yeah, trying to explain observations that don't fit within the, within the, mm. the current paradigm. Yeah. I think, yeah. I don't, the other place that they sometimes come from is um, journal clubs. I'll be perfectly honest with yeah. you. So we'll do, so my group um, does uh, a weekly meeting where one week we'll do a data club. Somebody presents their work they've been doing for the past few months. And then the next week, somebody else will do a journal club of a paper they're very, that they thought was really cool. Yeah. It may or may not be related to what we're studying, but it always sparks ideas. I asked Professor Kelly the same question about where her ideas come from. So how did you figure out that this is like, you know, when you were thinking about the questions that led there, like I want to go back to before you were able to test all of these cells. How did you pinpoint the problem? Like walk me through your thinking about like, was there an aha moment that got you to say, well, look, like I'm, I'm a chemist who likes to measure stuff. And, you know, my colleagues are inventing drugs and new molecules, but they're not knowing where it's going or not measuring it. Like, was there a moment that you remember that you really shifted your, your body of work towards targeting this more? Well, I think we've just gravitated that way through collaboration mainly. I mean, we, we do, you know, we do technology development, which means we develop hammers and then we have to go around and look for nails. And so I do that (laughs) and I, I do that by talking to people and, Luckily, with this particular hammer, I talked to Stefan Auger, who's a cancer biologist and a signal transduction expert. I said, what do you think would be an interesting thing to look at with this? And he had some ideas. And then we went over to CCBR and we talked to Jason Moffitt, who's a functional genomics expert, and asked him what he thought. And then before you know it, we had a, a list of candidates where the biology just wasn't very well understood. Mm. And with the ability to do these kind of massive screening types of studies, we thought we could get at that. So, so that's what I do a lot. It's just talking to people, understanding, you know, what, what are your bottlenecks? What problems can't you solve on your own? And then we can usually find a solution that's something new and, and allows people to see things that they couldn't see before. So where we are today with technology and, and, and the work that you're leading, where is the biggest bottleneck? Like what is, what is sort of the major hurdle that's stopping a lot of discovery currently? Um, I, I think one of the biggest problems is being able to find a signal when there's a lot of noise, right? And biology is very, very noisy. Mm-hmm. And in a collection of cells, 
even if they're all the same cell type, you may have some that are going this way. They're going that way. You've got some that are going straight. Yeah. And you you want to find the very special cell that's going in the direction that you think makes it relevant for therapeutic dis- discovery and development. So that's what we bring to complex problems is the ability to kind of not worry about the noise, look for the signal and find cells that are going to be able to give us the information that we need. So how much, how much of finding that signal through the noise is chance and luck and how much of it is just being targeted? Like if you, if you had to like, you know, think about what proportion goes into which area, given that you're looking at so many different things, like how, how would you define that process? Yeah. Well, I think there's always luck involved <laughs> in being successful in science, but it, it, you know, it's also keeping your eyes open and knowing when something interesting has just happened. Um, you know, a lot of the work that we do, it's, it's iterative. So we develop something and we understand what the technology is good at, but what it's not good at. And then we develop a new iteration where we kind of fix a problem and we make it more powerful and then it's able to solve new problems. And then we just kind of keep going with different types of problems. So, you know, the technology that I I told you about where we're able to do all this screening. uh, One thing that we became aware of as we were doing all of that work uh, is some of the problems around the development of cell therapies. Mm -hmm. So these are therapies that aren't molecules, they're cells, right? So you're harvesting cells from a patient, you're genetically engineering them and then putting them back into a patient. And these types of therapies are incredibly powerful, right? They're, they're really uh, becoming very mainstream in the clinic, but there's not a lot of finesse right now that goes into, okay, I've taken the cells out of the patient. Which cells am I actually putting back in? Yeah. And a lot of the cell therapy companies, they take cells out, they do something, and they just take all the cells that they could find and put them back in, <laughs> even though 90% of those cells may do absolutely nothing for right. a patient. So our ability to do all of this cell sorting has allowed us to really pinpoint the rare cells that will actually have activity in patients and then isolate those, uh, expand them so that we have enough for a dose. And then we see the potency of these types of therapies go way up. So that's what I mean about it being iterative. You know, we did all this screening, but we didn't really have a way to manipulate, let's say, patient cells so that we could walk away with a dose of 100 million cells to inject into a patient. So we kind of spun the technology, reconfigured it, uh, made it a different, made the devices in a different way. And then we had something that was relevant for a totally different problem. So that's, uh, you know, sometimes people look at our group and our publications, hey, you guys work on so many different things. That's very true because we're just always kind of hopping from one problem to another. Here's Professor Cummins building on the importance of collaboration. So can you just tell me a little bit about like what, what's exciting about collaboration? It sounds like you have global collaborations in a way. How do you develop those and how do you work across labs, right? Like how does that, how does that come to be and how does that like logistically work? Right. No, it's a great question. So, so sometimes it's facilitated by funding. Mm-hmm. So most recently I had a, uh, a call that we were successful on and it was a uh, cross um, country call between uh, Israel mm-hmm. and Canada. And we ended up getting funding because this amazing uh, 
professor, new new investigator from Israel, contacted me out of the blue. So I guess the the theme here is I respond to people who contact me out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> or it seems like people are finding your stuff and they're like, this person's good to work with, right? Like that's also a, oh, a testament well, to you, right? Okay, that's a nice way to put that. But yeah, so I do respond, I guess, to interesting requests. And, right. and both of the collaborations just came out of them um, contacting me. And, you know, we develop very, um, very good working relationships in part because um even though so far I haven't, this Israeli collaboration has come about during the pandemic. And so we haven't yet had a chance to go and meet each other in person. Yeah. But the the call included funds to do that, which is right. kind of remarkable. And so I'll be going there at some point and I'll be hosting um, them at some point in my lab. And That's cool. this particular funding call also included um, uh, uh, basically um, funds to increase capacity for t- for studying type 2 diabetes from developing countries. Mm-hmm. And so we all have um, several um, of my collaborator Luis's students come to Canada as well as part of that. So it, it's partly exchanges yeah. and um, very good communication in terms of we do a lot of Zoom calls that, um, <laughs> you know, that used to be Skype before the pandemic, yeah. but we would do Skype calls and uh, just keep up to date, you know, and yeah, um, yeah just mutual respect. And, uh, you know, my expertise is so different from theirs. And but we're all interested in learning about each other's. And I think that's that's what makes a collaboration really work. So it sounds like some of your collaborations, the theme is that there's a continuum of work, but you you all do something different. Yeah. Right. Like it seems like it, it, you're if I'm if I'm reading this correctly, like you know, your colleague in Brazil produces this molecule and needs someone to help test it, right? That's uh, right. And then your other collaborations is sort of, you know, you find the target and then someone helps develop the molecule. So it's a car, sort of a continuum of finding. So how do you find those attachments uh, when you don't technically work in the same sort of s- subdivision of science, right? Yeah, it's, um, yes, how do we do that? I, I think it's partly... Um, you know, it, it certain people have certain expertise and and I had that niche expertise yeah. that sort you know, Luis needed. Um, and I had that niche expertise, let's say that my Israeli collaborator needed. But uh, I also need them, right. you know, and in terms of when we when we find a new target and we want to validate it. I'm not an expert in every tissue and yeah. every system. And so I will seek out somebody you know, often locally first, if possible, because right. that that makes it a little easier. But if not, internationally, where, you know, we'll hopefully set up something where we can exchange um, tissues or, you know, yeah. send each other samples that the other person can analyze. And yeah, I'm very um, pro-collaboration. Yeah. And you can tell from my CV because there's a lot of collaborative yeah, work. So everyone, no one says I'm anti-collaboration, right? But yeah. I think sometimes the proof's in the pudding, right? Like it's like yeah. you see like your, your your story is just beaming with it, right? Like that you can see that those collaborations have been very fruitful. Yes. Yeah. And I love collaborating. I mean, what what's more fun, right? Because you right. can, you know, I remember. So I think I got into this very much as a postdoc. Mm-hmm. Uh, UT Southwestern is very collaborative. Yeah. Lots of groups. Um that collaborate together actually in that campus. And it just, um, you know, 
uh, you get to see so much more when yeah. you're part of a collaboration. You learn a lot more, yeah. actually. And and you probably recognize this, but in in the basic sciences, it's quite difficult to get a high quality publication these days with just the expertise from one group. Right. I don't know, but like if you want a cell paper, science, nature paper, it's very unlikely that one group is going to have all the expertise that needs to go into that paper. So yeah. collaborations are essential for elevating, you know, our science. In this episode, we've taken a deep dive into the process of developing new targets, where ideas come from, and the importance of collaboration in drug development. Speaking with Dr. Cummins and Dr. Kelly about their fascinating work and how it comes to be, we learned a lot about where the life cycle of a drug begins. It begins on target. I'd like to end this episode with a glimpse at the end result. While researchers are toiling away in their labs and offices, working hard on the next breakthrough, it's easy to lose sight of the impact of this work. Meet Lorraine Bayless. Lorraine has been living with type 1 diabetes for the past 49 years. For her, insulin is much more than a discovery. It's the reason she's alive. Over the years, Lorraine has been a witness to the innovation of drug research and a direct benefactor of its success. On a personal note, I've had the privilege of working with Lorraine over the past few years and I've learned a lot about the trajectory of diabetes research from her. Just a note, Lorraine is always very prepared and one of the things I love about working with her. So you might hear some papers rustling in the background as we chat. I am truly appreciative of the fact that I have had the opportunity to make use of Dr. Frederick Banting and Dr. Charles Best's discovery insulin. As a matter of fact, I even worked with Dr. Charles Best way back when he was honored at the CNE. It's interesting that um, Dr. Charles Best indicated to me that um, he really and truly loved the area that he was in. He was only a young researcher at the time. I think he was only around 20 years of age type of thing when he kind of discovered the magic secret to creating um, insulin. And he's Somebody said um, to him, he feels that he has belonged to the most satisfying of occupations. He said, because through science, you can serve mankind so well. I have lived for 49 years. I have no complications. I have no kidney failure. I have none of the real challenges that um, diabetes can bring to many people. So over the years, I'm guessing that your therapy and things of how you use your medication and, and, and your, your care has changed because of research. Have you seen the impact of research like throughout your, your, your life on, on how you've been cared for, what insulin products you got to use? Um, and, and how, like, how has it felt to have that kind of like, does that make you feel uncertain or are you excited to see what's coming in the horizon? Absolutely. I saw a great deal of change. As I said, the very first insulin I used was beef and pork, and so I had to take more and more because it was it was an animal product, and it, the system rejected it type of thing, and so I had to take more and more. But as I moved through time, um, yes, there were some insulins. There's one called NPH, which was not particularly helpful because it seemed to just suddenly 
um, have a mind of its own when it was going and you'd plunge high or low unpredictably. Um, I've, I've used a great variety of insulins, but one of the greatest blessings is I now have an insulin pump. That has been a godsend because I can see exactly what my blood sugars are every single solitary minute of the day. And I can, um, and I know exactly, for example, when I'm ill, how to, how to manage that because you have to take a great deal more insulin in order to um, deal with um, hypoglycemia. It sounds like you're very well tapped into the, to the research world as well. Uh, and especially, you know, patient-oriented research and some of the work that you're involved in. As you hear about all the exciting things in the diabetes world, what's something that gets you excited as a technology or something that you think will be as groundbreaking as the invention of insulin? Like, is there anything on the horizon that you hear about and you're like, that would be tremendous? I have just um, found out that um, if you've ever heard of Salt Vaccine, Salt was the company that found a cure for polio. And I've lived long enough to know what it was when children were living with um, polio. And the Salt company that is based out of um, California has just... Well, it's worked with mice, and they have just found a way to protect the cells from being destroyed. And they have um, run this for five years with um, rats, mice, type of thing, whichever animal they use. And they found that over a five-year period, the protection that they put around the insulin-producing cells held true. And so now they are starting um, that research with patients. And it's going to take time. But however, it is very exciting to know that what you could call the cure at this particular time is um, is possibly on the horizon. So Lorraine, as, as a person who's been, I guess his life has, from your own words, has been improved and extended perhaps by a great discovery. As you think about scientists who are working on the next great discoveries, like what, what advice or words of wisdom would you, would you want to share with them? I truly have incredible respect for researchers and the positive difference that they make in the lives of others. I People like Dr. Charles Best, I know he's not alone. Those, pe- those people who want to make a positive difference in the lives of others are truly my heroes. This episode of the I'm Pharmacy podcast was produced by Steve Southon, Kate Richards, and me, Mina Tadros. It was edited by Steve Southon with musical support from Steve Southon and Diego Martinez. Special thanks to Professor Carolyn Cummins, Professor Shana Kelly, and Lorraine Bayless for joining us on our first episode of season two. We'll be dropping new episodes every month, so be sure to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep asking questions, stay safe, and catch your next episode.